Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Yes, and here we are. Jolly good. It's 2020, the beginning of a new year. And it seems like I should acknowledge that in some way or another. I had a variety of different ideas about what I might do to acknowledge the beginning of the year. One of them was to start a new season and to do a whole bunch of stuff to kind of change the format and tighten things up and see if there's a direction that things could go that would be more well-defined. But good Lord, that would take so much effort. The other idea actually was to stop doing this. Uh, There's certainly plenty of good reasons to not continue to do this, but for whatever reason, I'm continuing. So this third option is to give you what might become somewhat of a regular occurrence. Because as it stands, uh, what I've been really interested in, there have been a few exceptions, but in general, these have been conversations. And I think conversations are extremely important. We're a social creature. That's our species. At least it has been for quite some time, and hopefully it will continue to be. So conversation is the way that we all get to know each other and get to kind of um, influence each other. And we learn about others through our ability to converse. It's not the only way that we learn, but particularly when there's distance between us, and of course there's only very few number of people that we don't have distance with, there's only very few number of people that we're actually really close to. If any, of course some of us are not really close to anyone. That, That can happen. But hopefully, each of us has a few people, at least. And then there's all of the others out there in the world that we know to some degree. We could say, you have your acquaintances. And it's important, I think, in a world of many different types of people, many different ideas, to converse about things. But I also think sometimes we have moments of clarity within ourselves, and we are able to kind of cobble together all the various experiences that we had into some kind of common narrative. And every now and then that kind of thing happens and I come up with a, an idea, you could say, maybe some kind of a narrative. It's not just a single idea, but it's kind of the way that all things interconnect. And so one such instance of that occurred recently, and that is what I'm going to present to you in this episode. It's just my own personal musings. It's incredibly self-indulgent. I apologize for that. Hopefully you will find it of some interest. I'm going to occasionally insert myself into my own monologue to either comment or explicate or perhaps at times edit what was originally a, let's say, field recording because I didn't do it at home. I just happened to have a device with me, and I was thinking about something that was kind of bothering me, and I just, it all kind of came together, and I threw it down. And there's some parts of it that maybe could have been better, so I try to make them a little better. I also want to mention that this was recorded a couple of weeks before what is now unfolding between Iran and the United States, which strikes me as a little spooky given the way that it started. So, uh, bears worth mentioning. It may be that the world is going to be quite a different place in short order. God willing, it will somehow work out to be better, but it's hard to imagine how that could possibly happen. Okay, so that's the introduction, and then there's the standard template here where I say something along the lines of, if you think this is of interest to, well, let's not say of interest. If you think this is of value, then kindly consider going to patreon.com slash taijireality to support the show, or you can go and send a little crypto to the links in the show description, or PayPal, and I hope you will consider passing on the assembly of silence word to those who you believe might find something of value in it for them as well. So we can spread it around, and if it is actually of value, hopefully it will take on a life of its own. I notice that there is a slight upward trend to the listenership, so that's encouraging. 
There is not a slight upward trend in the support of the program, so I'm still uh, funding this on my own dime. But as I've said times in the past, I think it's worth doing, and I hope that it will uh, prove to be worth the effort in some way or another, and maybe even if I never see that for myself, in some way or another, it will have done something of value for someone. Okay, enough of that. Here we go. It's a monologue. Hope you find it interesting. It comes down to the ever-growing, I'd say, consensus that things are falling apart and that this world is, if not doomed, then certainly about to go through some rather extraordinary changes. And looming over all of this is not only the sense of environmental catastrophe, economic catastrophe, political catastrophe, but also this encroachment of technology which has pervaded so many people's lives and that we are now aware is essentially monitoring and manipulating all of us. And so the convergence of all these forces bring the question of what humanity is front and center and what humanity is going to become. And there are many critics each of whom have their own sense of what is wrong, and each of whom have some, you know, not all of them, but many of whom have some prescription about what we're supposed to do about all of this. And yet, at the same time, a brief glance at history reveals that even the best laid plans, even the most incisive critique of a situation, and the most a painstaking development of some means to address it quite often goes haywire, just doesn't work out as intended, sometimes producing results, if not as horrible, occasionally more horrible or just more twisted and contorted than one could have imagined prior to the effort. So here we are. This is what's going on. And in some respects, what I find myself preoccupied with, maybe not most preoccupied with, but something that bothers me a great deal that I try to, to sort out is this question of evil. Now, we all have a pretty clear sense of what's meant by evil, but if you drill down into it, it's maybe not as clear as we might think. I've heard it said that the original terms in Hebrew, and I should do the research for this, right? Shouldn't I? But what I've heard is that the original terms that were translated as good and evil actually meant something more along the lines of advantageous or disadvantageous. Okay, so I looked it up. The, uh, the original Hebrew term for that's translated as evil, most commonly, there's a number of different words, but the one which is which appears most often, 434 times to be specific in the Old Testament, that is Strong's Concordance number 7451, Ra, Resh, Ayin, which means adversity, affliction. It comes from a root, which is spelled very similarly, Resh, Ayin, Ayin, number 7489 which means to spoil by breaking to pieces. So, there's not necessarily a sense of malevolence here. Adversity, affliction. It is true, though, that Ra, this is something that was pointed out by one of my teachers, I would say, a friend of mine named Lawrence Lyons, who goes by the name of Bala now wrote a very interesting book called The Language Crystal. I hope to have him as a guest someday. He says that there's a relationship between the word Ra in Hebrew and Ra, the sun god, in Egyptian mythology. 
So it would make sense that if the Jews were slaves of the Egyptians, that the God of the Egyptians would be associated with evil. And in that sense, it would have intent. So then it would have that malevolent quality to it. But the, the definition by itself, adversity, affliction, not necessarily malevolent. So that does suggest something like disadvantageous, something happening to you that's just not what you want, as opposed to it being a evil force that's out to get you, right? And then advantage, tov, is the word that's used most often for good. And its definition is beautiful, best, better, cheerful, at ease, pleasant, bountiful, glad, kind. It's basically all the things that one would want. So it's the things that one would consider advantageous. It doesn't necessarily have any kind of holy connotation. So it doesn't mean heavenly, per se. It just means what you want. So that really does frame the concept of good and evil a little differently. We tend to think of it in moralistic or spiritual dimensions, but on a very concrete level, we're talking about what people want, what people don't want. Something that's pleasant, enjoyable, and something that is unpleasant, that causes suffering, dukkha. So it's definitely the case that the thing that we find pleasant and which we consider advantageous is not necessarily good for everything. So what we like and what we want, either individually or as a species, is not always good for everything. It's not always what everything else wants, all the other creatures, all the, the entire biosphere, right? So our idea of good, quite obviously, isn't necessarily good for the whole biosphere. Indeed, the more we focus on what we consider to be good, the thing that we like, our preference, you could say, the more problematic our relationship becomes with the biosphere, which I think is basically the whole point of this passage in the ancient Bible. It says, it's through the knowledge of our own preferences and eating of that fruit. So it's the knowledge of good and evil. Eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So we know what we like and we know what we don't like. And we can eat of the fruit of that by basically taking action to try to slant things towards our advantage, to make things better for us. And by making things better for us, we create the conditions that are not necessarily so great for everything else, right? That's why we're in conflict with our environment, you might say. That's why we're having the kinds of incredibly large planetary-wide problems that we're having because we've become so good at getting what we want, some of us. But in general, as a species, we become incredibly clever and adept. We developed all this technology to get what we want out of this world. And as a consequence, what are we getting? A world that's in serious crisis. That, I think, is really the fundamental message. Now, the question is, does it have to be that way? And that's where we will now pick up on the original audio thing that I recorded that started this whole thing. Here we go, back to that. Does it have to be that way? Well, maybe on some level it does. I mean, how do we describe evolutionary drivers? But that there is one type of organism which has a particular relationship with the environment that produces some sort of a byproduct which is toxic to it. All byproducts, all effluence is toxic to the organism producing it. That's why it gets rid of it. So then the buildup of that, if the species proliferates, becomes an environmental problem for that species and sometimes for other species as well. There's also the way in which when a species becomes extremely adaptive, it opens up the range of the environmental niche within which it can occupy, the, the, the types of energy source that it can use. And humanity is, of course, incredibly adept at 
not only finding ways of eating things that we wouldn't have otherwise eaten, but also transforming the material world into sources of energy for ourselves. And we think of all that as being good, or at least we have, until basically the environmental movement. And I guess there was a, a, a nascent kind of recognition in the Malthusian period where there was a sense that you know, this whole venture is really doomed. And I guess even back in the prophetic age, there was an overall sense of tragedy about the trajectory that humanity was on, built into the essential myths that, uh, you know, have informed us over the centuries, is this sense of tragedy. And that quite often tragedy comes about as the result of great deeds. So having said all of that, now we have this condition where we have proliferated the planet and we've created an incredible amount of effluence and we've pushed out many, many other species, uh, some of them extinct and some of them now to the brink of extinction. And it appears that some of the somewhat reliable cycles of planet Earth have now been disturbed in one way or another. And regardless of what the reason for all of this is, you can call it, you know, climate destabilization or you can call it uh, an affront to God, you know. But I think both of those are, are, are good ways of thinking of it. It's worth thinking of it in both of those ways. We're now in a very precarious situation where you have an incredible demand and a increasingly unstable supply, let's say. And we also, at the same time, are in a period of profound disparity where wealth inequity is probably greater than at any other period in time. I don't know if that's actually true, but it seems that, yes, when you throw technology into the mix, the amount of power that can be aggregated by the people at the top of this technocratic global system is pretty remarkable. And we don't really know exactly the extent to which that's the case because it's not unreasonable to assume that technologies have been developed of which we have very little awareness. And what those technologies can do will probably only know the moment they are unleashed, let's say. So, you know, that may sound like paranoia, and I guess technically it is, because it's beyond knowing, which is what paranoia means, right? Gnosis is knowing, and power is beyond. And of course, we don't know, but it's not unreasonable to speculate that that's the case. There's a tendency within the political realm for people to feel as if we are unfairly placed in this position and that all of us, whether it's on the left or the right, typically within each group, they only see themselves as being unfairly placed in the situation, that somehow or another the other group is responsible for their condition. One of the themes that I keep returning to in this program in general is this idea that the characteristics of a network are largely dependent on the size of the network, the number of nodes, and the number of connections between the nodes. And that in some respects, this is a good way of describing population dynamics, that the larger a population, that in and of itself is going to account for the characteristics of the society. And it makes sense that as you have larger and larger numbers of people, the need to control them becomes ever greater because you just can't have a free-for-all with 7.x billion people on the planet. And so governments are increasingly incentivized to find ways to keep the population from becoming restive, I believe is the word. And there's a tendency to think of this as sort of a plot against the people. So those of us who have gone beyond the partisan paradigm and don't see it as being the people on the other side who are to blame might be tempted to want to think that 
Well, it's the government that's to blame. But I think that actually is sort of an oversimplification because if you look at what's happened in recent history, you know, the story of the of the 20th century, if you like, is the story of the uprising of massive populations and the incredible chaos that that brought about. You know, hundreds of millions of people were slaughtered because the people who were running the show lost control. So that's not to say that the people running the show are good. That's not to say that they are making the best choices or that they have the interests of the people at heart. I think quite often quite the reverse. They're making some terrible choices and they really don't have the interests of humanity at large at heart. Or of the natural world or of God. But I do think that it's still nonetheless more a feature of the network, if you like, than it is of the leadership. Because, well, power corrupts. <laughs> and so, in essence, people who get put into positions of power do the same thing over and over again because it is a characteristic of the network and not of the individuals. You know, broadly speaking, maybe there are a few exceptions here and there. Or at least there are some who attempt to be exceptions, and whether or not they actually are is another question. It's easy to be an exception rhetorically, but in terms of actual policy, it seems there's an incredible amount of gravity towards the same, you know, business-as-usual type of thing. So all of this is just to say it's completely understandable that our modern, technocratic, densely populated societies have a tendency to create alienation amongst the people because it's way easier to control splintered populations than it is to control a population that has a common sense of identity and purpose. As sad as that is, it just it seems to be a basic uh, byproduct of the population density of the, of the network. Okay, I think that covers it. Back to whatever it was I was saying before. The assumption within each political body, let's say, is that we're the ones who are being wronged here and that we don't deserve this maltreatment. Now, I'm really not going to argue with that. I think that there are so many instances where people have been abused and and tricked and and uh, betrayed. It, it's just it, it goes it goes way back. It continues to this day and it happens around the world. That's what happens with power because power makes decisions based upon the needs of power and and the concerns of the citizenry. Even if we're in a democracy where that's supposed to be front and center, are obviously just not as important. That's just the way it is. But there is a degree of responsibility within all of us for this. You know, on some level, regardless of what the circumstance is, if we're continuing within a system, then we're agreeing with it on some level. We're saying, yeah, I'll work with this, right? Because obviously there have been some extraordinary people who have said, no, I'm not going to go along with this anymore. Like the monk who sits down and lights himself ablaze. It's, it's mind-blowing, but it happens. It's hard to imagine, but there it is. It's happened. We all know it's happened. You know, Jesus is the representation of that soul who says, Nope, not going to play in this, in this game here. And interestingly, Jesus says, do not resist evil. Now, what does that mean? It's, it's a little bit confusing. If we go back to the, the Adam and Eve story, the eating of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, of the knowledge of advantage and disadvantage, 
It's knowing how to take advantage. It's knowing when you're at a disadvantage. That's what we were told not to eat from. Why? Well, if you know how to take advantage, then you skew the system. You create a power dynamic. And the order of things begins to erode. Like, if we were the stewards of the earth that I believe we were supposed to be, that that was really our true purpose here on planet earth, we were given this garden to tend and to be respectful to and, and to love the creator of, and so to take care of the garden. But if we could see how we could gain advantage by pumping various things to maximize our crop output through fertilizer, pesticide, genetic engineering, to do similarly with our herds, right? And to kind of maximize profit in the marketplace, to be able to push competition out not only in terms of other vendors, but other species in general. You know, to basically take things over. That's an incredible displacement effect. It causes all kinds of misery for all kinds of creatures, not just human beings. But that's what we've really, that's like our engineering capability, is figuring out how to take advantage, how to get an edge on things. We were also told not to eat of the tree of life, which meant to be greedy about living. Because it's obvious, if you just observe what's going on in the garden, things come and go. You know, we're here for a little while and then we go. Now, what is it that makes the garden good? Things that cling on and hold on past their time? No. What makes things good is when things go, hey, I had a good ride. I'm ready to go so that I don't fuck things up for the next group. That's what made things good in the garden, right? So, Jesus says, do not resist evil. For those reasons, he was the ultimate rabbi. He was saying, look, this is a short ride no matter what. Why mess it up just to stick around longer? Particularly if whatever it is you're going to do in order to do that is going to make you bitter and angry and resentful and fearful and violent and conniving and destructive. I mean, these are all now common human attributes. Why? It's because we resist evil. We resist being put in a position of disadvantage. And we eat of the tree of life which means that we erode away that tree. We're not eating the fruit of it, right? It, doesn't, it says don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it doesn't say don't eat the fruit of the tree of life. It says don't eat the tree of life. So we're like gnawing away at the bark and the branches and we got down into the roots and we're eating the tree of life. And what's happening? Well, life is changing. It doesn't look as, as good as it once did. It doesn't look like it might be able to regenerate itself the way it once did. And now it's going to fall on our shoulders to engineer the world to be something that's hospitable. Not even nice. Not even like a decent place to be. Just something that we might be able to survive in, huddled in our uh, technologically mediated pods hoping that the storm will pass and that we might someday again emerge into a world worth living in as a species that would be worth being a member of. That's a pretty long shot. And given our track record when it comes to our ability to produce the results we're looking for, ha! give me a break. Are you kidding? That's our plan? I mean, no wonder half of the, of the techno-dreamers out there are trying to figure out a way off of this planet. But you know what? That's even more insane. Okay, dark picture painted in as clear and un 
flinching a manner as I could handle. Okay, so I want to insert a little anecdote at this point. Because uh, one of the things that's kind of a corollary to the fact that quite often things don't turn out the way we expect them to is that that's not only the case when it comes to what we want to have happen or what we think is going to happen, uh, but just in sort of the general terms of we may see things as being in an incredibly dangerous or dark circumstance, but we still don't really know what's going to happen until we play it to the end. So recently I had a, an amazing illustration of this. A friend of mine came to visit. He's kind of on a chess-playing kick. And uh, so I played him a game that went on late until the night, and eventually he won. And then the next day he wanted to continue to play, and I wasn't quite as eager to play as I had been the day before, so he played a game with my wife, and they played to a certain point, and then I started to take an interest in the game, and long story short, my wife and I beat my friend. And then there was a rematch, and we did it again. And then there was a rematch, and we did it again. And then the last time, he insisted that this was just going to be him and her, and I had to stay out of it. So, okay, I stayed out of it, and things... I really wasn't paying attention to the game at all. But eventually, I kind of checked in, and things weren't looking too good. She was down a number of significant pieces, and was kind of being chased around the board. And... So... I stepped into the game and we had him in checkmate within three moves. And it really looked like there was no way that could possibly happen. I didn't think that there was a way it could happen. I saw one move that was interesting. And so the point of that is that you have to play the game all the way to the end. And that it's really helpful to have a good team. You can't do it alone. That's what I got from it. So, it may look dark, and I recorded the rest of this thing before this stuff started with Iran. So, now it looks even darker. <laughs> but we have to play it all the way to the end. You have to keep your eyes open, and, uh, and do the best you can. All the way to the very end. And then the stuff that I'm about to say in the remainder of what I originally recorded, that's what's coming up next. Enjoy today. Try to find some goodness today. Open your heart today to someone, to something, to God, to your family, to your friends, to your loved ones, to your pets to the trees, to everything that you can open your heart to, find a way to do it today. That's all I've got to say. Well, that's all I had to say then. But if that were all I had to say in general, then that would be the end of this show. And I have thought of a few other things I wanted to add on here. I can imagine that there's many people who have a hard time imagining opening their heart to anything. I certainly felt that way at one time. And at a certain point, just basically assumed that the whole idea of love was nonsense. In fact, my father once told me explicitly that uh, there was no such thing as love. And I guess all I could really say about it is that uh, once you give up, then um, then opportunities arise that you wouldn't otherwise expect. And if if you feel disappointed that that uh, you haven't found what you're looking for, then stop looking for it and see what shows up instead. Because quite often the thing that you think you're looking for doesn't exist. 
And the thing that actually is really what you're looking for, that would actually work, that's functional, that, that would work naturally, is something you hadn't even considered. There's an interesting bit of Taoist wisdom that I always think about when it comes to love. I can't remember exactly where I read this. I think it's probably in Thomas Cleary's translation of... um, It's kind of a collection of a bunch of Taoist writings. I think it's called the Tao of Politics. And it kind of is a little brief passage about how things hold together. And I'm going to summarize it because uh, I don't remember the specific wording and, of course, it would just be Thomas Cleary's translation. So what I got from it is this. That originally things held together because it was one thing. That it was the Taoists, in essence. And that one thing meant that there was no differentiation, no distinction within it. So it was an undifferentiated unity. So that's holding together about as completely as possible. But when there came to be differentiation and distinction, and there were different things involved, initially it was harmonious. So they call that phase harmony. Harmony means there's no contention between the members. They all still have the exact same idea of what it is that they're all doing. But then at a certain point, conflict begins to arise. And that's the domain of love. So they make this really interesting distinction between love and harmony. Love involves contention. There's a disagreement, a fundamental disagreement. But at the same time, there's a basic underlying feeling that holds things together. It's sort of like things are being held together on the basis of something that transcends the differences between people or between things, if you like. There's two other phases that are identified in that passage. When, and I think the way it's phrased is basically like, uh, when the Tao is lost, then there's harmony. And when harmony is lost, then there's love. And when love is lost, then there's justice. Because justice requires a rule in order to hold things together. There is no common feeling. There has to be some kind of set of abiding rules that everyone agrees to. And when justice is lost, then there's ritual, which means that people are just doing things without understanding why and there's really no rule anymore, which means that it's not really holding together so well. It's very uh, flimsy. So love is right there in the middle. And it's perhaps the best we can hope for in this world even though it involves a fair amount of contention. You have to be willing to fight fairly and honestly in order to love. So, there's another Taoist phrase that often comes to mind when I'm thinking about these podcasts which is uh, those who say don't know and those who know don't say. So I guess I would have to put myself in the I don't know category since I'm saying this stuff. And I'm not sure what it is that I would have to know in order to not say something. But there is another Taoist phrase, and I'm pretty sure it's from the, the same book referenced earlier, that says that one of the biggest problems that happened at certain critical moments of uh, social history was when people who learned something failed to share it. 
And Colin, in one of our recent uh, episodes, includes in his definition of a wizard someone who shares whatever understanding that they have as being one of the fundamental rules. I'm not a huge fan of the word wizard, but I think that, that there's something to this idea that if, you, if you've learned something, then you've just got to share it. And I'm not exactly sure what it is that I've learned, but I know I've learned something. And I'm not exactly sure how valuable it is to anyone except myself, but I know it's been valuable to me. So I have to assume that since it's been valuable to me, it's got to be valuable to someone else in some way or another, and that on some level it's my duty to share it to whatever extent I can. And that's why I'm going to continue doing these uh, these podcasts. So... This is an episode that is only 41 minutes long, which is pretty short for an assembly of silence. And I'm having a problem with uh, that episode that I just referenced with Colin because it's too damn long. And there's a section towards the end of it where we kind of switch topics and start to talk about this podcast. So I think what I might do is I might just slap that on right now, right here. And, And that way... When I release the next episode, it won't be outrageously long. It'll only be standard, you know, radio hour length, give or take. So uh, let's see whether or not that's what happens next. I don't really care about the aesthetic side of things too much, which I guess is uh, indicated in my production values, but... But I think, you know, maybe it would be smart for me to think a little bit more carefully about that. I'd, I'd rather just focus on mm-hmm. the ideas, but I know that presentation is very important when it comes to, you know, it's one of the criticisms that I have of Wheeler. So I, I and I'm also aware it's one of my weak spots. So I, I should think about it a bit more. I think that in order to grow, people need to feel like they know you because your followers are going to be mostly interested in you and they like the conversations and the people you choose to have conversations with, but they're mostly interested in you. And they kind of like having a relationship with you in a way, even if it's one-sided, you know, it's just a biological thing. And if they don't see you, they don't know what you look like. It's hard to make that connection. Yeah. I think that might be, that might be very problematic for me because, um, that's that's definitely not my interest at all. It's it's pretty much the opposite of, of mm-hmm. what I'm interested in. That's kind of a non-starter, I think. Really? Do you mind if I ask what the what the like what is the reason that you're opposed to it? Well, I mean the, the easiest way for me to describe that is in astrological terms, because it's like I don't really have a very strong uh, sense of self or personality. It's not something that I like to focus on at all. And I just don't like, I don't like being the center of attention. Just don't like it. You know, there's nothing there to talk about. So what, what's the difference between, what's the difference between the visual and the audio? Well, I wasn't thinking so much about the visual thing as, as the idea of being like the, the subject of interest. You know, so if you're going to try to develop an audience, oh, you know what I, I mean? See. So that's the problem that I have with it. I don't, it's the same with music. Like I, I hated the idea of being like, I've naively thought that people liked the music, but you know, I should have known better because that's basically, you know, the whole way that, that the music industry operates is on the basis of the cult of personality. And I, I find that to be abhorrent. No, <laughs> Really? Well, okay, but you already have you already have people who follow you. And I mean, I assume you would agree they follow you because they like you. I think it's because they're interested in the conversations and that's what I would hope, you know. And and to some extent that's why I have the aesthetic I do is because I I guess in a way I, I have a little bit of wheeler in me. I'd I'd rather ferret out, you know, a lot of people who would be put off <laughs> by my you know, not uh-huh. really giving a shit about whether I'm presenting myself as an interesting person 
and just kind of focus on what is the matter at hand. And I think that I'm pretty committed to that. I don't see how I could feel good about going for the the uh, trying to develop some sort of um, some brand charismatic <laughs> personality. That, yeah, you know, it just it's it ain't me. <laughs> well, I think that you already do have that. Um, I don't think you have to develop anything. Um, okay. But well, I mean, I, I can I can respect. I mean, I understand the the feeling. Uh, I I personally, perhaps for astrological reasons, both think it's important to go to to go down that path of trying to appeal to people as a as an individual in order to spread the message. Both because I think it's it's the way to go, but also because my ego likes it. So uh -huh. <laughs> um, I think that we may be we may be different in that way. Yeah, and I think that's great. I don't have a problem with that. I think you know we're all different nodes of consciousness that are uh, attuned to different things. And for whatever reason, you know, part of me thinks, well, maybe you should just get over it and just like transcend that, that limitation. I don't know. Uh, I think that there's too much that's built upon the way that I see that the, uh, really for me probably is going to be the way it is, but I'm certainly willing. I mean, one of the things about me is that I'm, I'm, pretty well willing to stay open to just about anything, but I'm not going to like jump into it until I've understood why it is that it, it's a good idea, you know? So I'm very circumspect about everything, but at the same time, mm -hmm. I try to remain open. So I will try to remain open to that whole way of doing things. Well, I don't, I don't think you could have to jump right into that stuff and it may not necessarily be any, something that you actually end up doing. Um, but, uh, like, how would you feel about, here's what I could think of as the minimal step to move towards that direction and see how it feels. Like, let's say you came on my podcast, like, um, modern day wizards or speak freely TV. Um, both of them have a podcast, uh, episode cover, which has each person's face on it. Ah, interesting. So how would you feel about that? Well, I don't know how I would feel about it until it happens. So I guess uh, I'd have to try it, see and see how it feels. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So does that mean that I would be identified as a modern day wizard? It, so that's the thing. You would have to clear that test. So let me just give you what my definition of a wizard is, okay? Okay. So a wizard seeks truth. Okay, check one. And they share it. And share it. Yeah. Why why is that a wizard? Well, okay, so it's it's that's basically the most simple simplified way of putting it. But basically I've I watched a bunch of videos, did some reading on what wizards is, and that just basically seems to be what what a wizard is. I mean, it's just basically a scientist who doesn't rule out the spiritual domain, who is committed to truth no matter what it is. And who uses it according to what I, you know, what some people call natural law, meaning that you're you're using it to the benefit of others and yourself. And in order to follow natural law, you also have to share anything anything which benefits you with others. Otherwise, you're controlling others. So you can, and, and that's basically wisdom. Using using information in alignment with natural law is what wisdom is. Um, so basically huh. sharing things is the same thing as following natural law because you're doing it for the benefit of others. So you can condense wisdom and natural law into just speak the truth. I mean, seek the truth and speak it basically. So that's anyways, that's my definition of a wizard. Interesting. You know, the, the idea of the free flow of information being part of that definition is really interesting. Mm. I, mean, I don't know that that's necessarily traditionally what a wizard was considered to be, but it makes sense because I know that the word wizard comes from wise. It's the same yep. root, right? Yep. And I think that the art is a diminution, if I remember correctly. So it's like a little bit wise, you know, which I think is actually on some level a very high level of wisdom because there is no such thing as anything more than a little bit wise. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, 
we're fundamentally ignorant creatures on oh, some yes. basic level. Mm-hmm. And so wisdom, you know, like, so the little, the, the ard part is, I think, part of the wisdom. Like a little bit wise is about as much as one could hope for, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm on board with all that. I think that's great. And the free exchange of information also, I think, is huge. And, and it's one of those, I really struggled with that for a long time. It actually prevented me from doing a lot of things because I was always concerned that, that I would just be giving away whatever it is that I was doing and would end up in a, you know, without, without any kind of reciprocation for the energy that I put into things, you know, like you, you hear, you hear a lot of stories about that kind of thing happening. And, and, uh, and I was really concerned about that for a very long time. And now I realize that that just doesn't, it's unimportant. It has nothing to do with, with, uh, you, you know, wisdom doesn't really expect anything back. No, but you get it back. You get it back. You don't get necessarily get it back in terms of money and, and all those type of things. But I mean, if you're, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, it is beneficial to you. Yeah. And I I think that the pursuit of the truth is its own reward, you know, to the extent that we're able to discover something that really is knowledge, you know, because that, that's back to the scientist thing. So the the extent to which a wizard is a scientist, it sounds like we're having the conversation that should be on your podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I was just thinking that exact same thing. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember... Turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home.